The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Thanksgiving is a strange holiday for vegans. I mean, we're as grateful as anybody else, and yet we know that this day means that millions of bright, curious, affectionate birds have been slaughtered for the sake of tradition. So we all deal with this dichotomy in our individual ways, but we all have to deal with it. And this year, we've got the pandemic and smaller family gatherings or none at all, and even more stress than our annual run-in with cognitive dissonance and the utter cluelessness of our fellow humans, even those who claim to love animals. It can help me to remember when I was one of them. I last ate meat on Thanksgiving 1968. I was 18 and didn't have family around that year, so I invited five friends to my little studio apartment, and it was clear that something akin to turkey was expected, even though I'd stopped eating animals myself a few months before. I didn't know any vegetarians, but I figured that even they must take the day off for Thanksgiving. Now, I had never cooked a turkey, and my little oven probably wouldn't have even held one. And so I bought six rock Cornish game hens. There wasn't enough room on my little table for serving dishes, so we sat down to plates already filled, like in a restaurant. And I saw six little corpses. Six precious lives. So I ate the meal, but afterwards I was done. Done with meat. Now, vegan was going to take a while, but even so, Thanksgiving for me is both a national holiday and a personal anniversary. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan program. Whether you're listening at Thanksgiving time or any time in the age of podcasts, I am your host, Victoria Moran, and my home online is MainStreetVegan.net. You can follow Main Street Vegan on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can also join the Main Street Vegan podcast listeners group, which is pretty lively these days. So I hope you'll join us. 
oh, golly, I'm happy to be introducing this person. He's somebody that should have been on years ago. So my apologies for being late. For the entire luxurious hour today, we will be hearing from someone I have admired since I saw him, gosh, seven years ago now, I think, in the beautiful documentary, Peaceable Kingdom, The Journey Home. It's about farmers and ranchers who one day experience the kind of awakening that I had on my 18th Thanksgiving. But for them, that meant not just giving up some familiar foods, but giving up a livelihood and, and facing the loss of, of deep family roots and traditions. But they did it anyway. And one of them was Harold Brown, my guest today. He was born and raised on a cattle farm in Michigan and spent half his life with cattle and three years in the dairy industry. Through trials and tribulations, he adopted a plant-based diet and later became vegan. Today, Harold advocates for animal rights, social and environmental justice. Welcome, warmly, Harold Brown. Thank you for having me, Victoria. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a it's a pleasure to have you and, and really an honor because, I mean, I think all vegans are fabulous, but most of us didn't have to give too much up to make this change in our life. And I know for you, there was a lot more to it. So because we do have the full hour and we can take our time, tell us your story and include some details. Oh, okay. Um, the... Um... Well, I'm like any farm kid who grew up in the Midwest. Um, you are, well, pretty much anywhere in the United States or the world for that matter. But the United States is kind of interesting and unusual in certain ways for farm kids that are in um, the deal with farm animals. Uh, but I grew up like any other kid. You're indoctrinated into this way of life. And... Um, I don't mean indoctrination, the word, to have any kind of negative connotation uh, because we're all indoctrinated. It begins with our parents. It's how we develop our moral compass. It is how we determine right from wrong and um, how we, you know, are taught to show up in the world. So, um, of course, with me growing up on a farm, it started with my parents and my grandparents and... um, and over time, um, there were other things that reinforced this worldview of using animals for food. And I also was a hunter and going out and hunting or raising. We also raised um, rabbits and uh, we had dairy goats for a short period of time and a few pigs. But to see animals as a thing of utility and also as an income, uh, was something that was taught to to me. Um, I learned that from my parents, my family, and then uh, kind of our immediate rural community. Uh, my great uncle's own farms near us. My great uncle lived across the road. He had a sheep farm, and um, he always had a lot of sheep over there. And uh, my other great uncle, he was uh, had a dairy farm. So I was in contact with all of that. And, uh, but the things that reinforced this idea, the indoctrination reached beyond the family, I should say. 
Um, next came my church. Then beyond that, uh, there was 4-H and then, um, and for a lot of farm kids, FFA. Uh, and, but to tell you the truth, Victoria, the thing that was kind of the biggest reinforcer for me um, wasn't so much the stuff outside my family that I mentioned, but was um, television. <laughs> I was a kid of TV growing up in the 60s. Um, we're about the same age, I realized. Uh, watching TV and stuff, I noticed that watching commercials, every commercial break had at least one food commercial in it. And usually they were selling animal products. And um, if they're really creative, like McDonald's was, they could cram just about every farm animal and farm product into yeah. one sandwich. Like the, um, oh, God, what was it called? The, um, the, the biscuit they have at breakfast, the McMuffin. Oh, yeah, Egg McMuffin. Yeah, it's got bacon, it's got cheese, you got pork that, and then you've got a sausage which has beef, pork, and who God knows who, what else is in it. But, you know, I'm looking at that, and this is also the time of the Green Revolution in the United States in agriculture. And one of the mantras of the Green Revolution was, is feeding a hungry world. So I thought, hey, that's what we're doing. We're feeding a hungry world. And, you know, we always heard about this starving children in China and all this other stuff around the dinner table. And, um, you know, this was all stuff that I thought was, you know, good, wholesome American apple pie, American flag. You know, hey, I'm doing, you know, good work here. Um but it wasn't until later that I started putting things together. My, my timeline is kind of weird on how this all happened. Uh, I had a heart attack when I was 18 years old, and um, it was pretty bad. I was home alone, though. I was taking care of the farm while my brother and my parents went on a short, long weekend camping trip. So I was doing chores. I was 18 years old. And I was watching TV, eating a half gallon of ice cream. And yes, America, for me, one serving of ice cream was half a gallon. <laughs> um, and my wife will attest to that. Uh, and all of a sudden, they started having all the classical symptoms, you know, jaw pain, left arm went numb. And before I knew it, I passed out. I don't remember anything. It hurt really bad. And I woke up and I couldn't breathe. And it felt like somebody was standing on my chest. And then I got caught my breath and I got up. I felt great. You know, I thought, hey, you know, when you're 18, you're bulletproof anyway, right? Right. So I, you know, didn't think any more about it. Watched this bad B film I was watching that night on television and uh, went to bed and never had another symptom for years. Um, actually, never did have any other symptoms. Um, it wasn't until probably 14 years later when my dad had his first heart attack and bypass. And when he had his heart attack, I wasn't home when it happened. But when I found out what the symptoms were, I'm going, oh, crap, that's what happened to me. And uh, so I was paying very close attention to what uh, his cardiologist said, what his registered dietitian said, what his respiratory therapist had to say. And back then, um, when 
you had a parent that had um, heart disease, the you had this meeting with the cardiologist and the um, respiratory therapist and the registered dietitian, and they said, well, you know, you have a genetic predisposition for this disease. And I still said nothing about what happened to me. And I just listened. And um, they said, well, this is what we're doing for your dad. And well, like clockwork, about every five years, my dad was having another major cardiac episode. He had another bypass. He had an aortal aneurysm in his abdomen that blew out, nearly killed him. He had a stroke, which took his speech and his ability to work with numbers. And um, this all happened over a period of a few years. And um, I just, you know, I was listening to what they had to say. And um, my dad was following their protocols and it wasn't, it was still happening. And I went to work for a dairy plant in Michigan and I got injured on the job. So we were teamsters. So I went to union doctor and he said, well, you, you, when's the last time you had a physical? I said, yeah, like years ago. And he said, okay. He said, let's do a physical. And uh, they did blood work. He came back. He says, there heart disease in your family? I said, yeah, and told him about my dad. And being a small town, he knew my dad's physician. And um, he said, well, we need a consultation. And he hung up. And I'm going, cripe. I said, a consultation? That's never good, right? So <laughs> I, uh, I went in, sat down with him. He had my blood work next to my dad's blood work, uh, his preoperative to his first um, heart attack. He said, you guys are a mirror image of each other. He said, your cholesterol, both of our cholesterols were at that time about 180. And considering that for us, we always had a freezer full of meat. I, For me, eating steaks was two or three. If I ate pork chops, I ate six to eight of them. I mean, it was crazy how much meat I ate. I ate more than the average American. But my cholesterol wasn't a problem. It was our triglycerides. And I'm going, I don't even know what that is. Well, he gave me a pamphlet. He said, you can read up on it. And he says, it also tells you what you can do to help uh, control your triglycerides. And I'm going, well, how come I've never heard um, my dad's physicians ever talk about this? And he said, well, he said, to be honest, they don't get much um, nutritional education. And I said, well, what makes you different? He said, well, I'm an osteopath. And he says, we, it's nutrition is part of our training. So... He in no way even suggested a plant-based way was to go. Of course, this was, what, in the mid-'80s, I guess. And um, he, uh, I read this stuff, and basically the bomb for high triglycerides is eating sugar and saturated fats together. But it's even worse if it's animal saturated fats and sugar. So think like, you know, really rich desserts and um, cream puffs, things like that. And probably the worst thing that you could eat is ice cream. And so I'm eating, you know, super premium ice cream from this dairy plant that I worked at where we made ice cream. And, uh, you know, I was eating probably close to three gallons a week of ice cream. And I'm going, I got to stop doing that. So, and he said, I asked him, what should I do? And he says, well, no ice cream. 
He said, watch your desserts. He said, I would suggest that you give up red meat and, um, and eating red meat with any kind of sugars in a dessert afterwards. And I'm going, okay. And he didn't even suggest that I eat lean red meat. He just said red meat. So I did that. And, you know, I shared this all with my family. And uh, it didn't go over real well, let's put it that way. So um, I started getting static from all sides on my choices. And um, this was about 1989, 1990. It got so bad that I just left the farm. And I moved to Cleveland, Ohio. And I worked there as a mechanic. And uh, one of the first cars I worked on had a bumper sticker on it. And it said, I don't eat my friends. And it had little little cartoons of animals. I had no idea what that meant. And um, at this particular, it was an independent shop I worked at. And we were encouraged to, after we fixed the cars, to take what the work order and go out and talk to the customer, explain what we did, you know, and um, answer any questions they may have. Well, it was this very wonderful and warm uh, black woman who um, said, I, you know, I showed her everything. Do you have any questions? She says, no. And I said, but can I ask you a question? I said, what's that bumper sticker mean? And she said, well, I'm a vegetarian. I'm going, what's that? And I'm, I hadn't heard, this is 1990, I hadn't heard that word. And, uh, you know, I did go to college, you know, but it's not something that was on the radar in the Midwest anyway. And she explained it to me. And I go, wow. And I said, after she explained it to me, I said, oh, my grandmother used to mention uh, people that ate like you do. And they, she called them, um, uh, oh, what were they called? Pythagoreans. And uh, her generation, she was born in 1900, they called vegetarians Pythagoreans. And um, I go, wow. And I asked her, I said, where do you buy your food? And she said, oh, the food co-op. So that weekend, we sought out the food co-op, which was a very small co-op in Cleveland. And uh, we joined. And as we were walking out, you know, it was all about supporting local farmers and food systems and so on. And walking out, there was a little oh, photocopy thing with telephone numbers you could rip off for a vegetarian um, potluck. So I called and... Um, we met up with these folks and, uh, you know, of course, not knowing what to take, we ended up taking, doing, I suppose, what every new, at least back then, what every newbie in, you know, vegetarian or veganism does, chips and salsa. You can't. <laughs> can't go wrong. No. So we uh, went and this was not like any vegetarian group or vegan group I've ever known. Um, it was called Northeast Ohio uh, Windstar Connection. Now, what is Windstar? Windstar was a foundation started by John Denver, who a lot of people don't know was a was macrobiotic, and um, part he had these symposiums out in Aspen every two years, I think it was, that um, he would bring in all these thought leaders from around the world talk about all kinds of stuff from peace to social justice to um, 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 diet 
and so on. And John Robbins was a good friend of his. John was one of the speakers. And, uh, you know, and I went to the for my first symposium in 1995, and that was a real eye-opener. And I'm going, wow, this is crazy. Look at all these people, you know. And there was like 2,000 people at the symposium. So Windstar Foundation had what they called connections all over the world. And the Northeast Ohio connection was started by uh, a friend of mine, Jim, and his wife, Hannah, who was a doctor. Uh, he was an um, engineer. And uh, they um, had founded this. And I went to it. And there were a couple doctors in the group, all kinds of really great people. But it wasn't just about food. It was about other stuff, too. And there was this thing called... Um, Oh, it was a, I can't remember the name of this coursework they did. They were facilitators for it. But there were two psychologists out of California called Jampolskis, Mr. and Mrs. Jampolsky. And they're psychiatrists. Yeah, love is letting go of fear. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, yeah. And uh, they have a whole program, which they were facilitators for. And I don't know, I kind of kept away from that, you know, feely stuff. <laughs> oh, it's not. It's not the way guys in America are brought up, you know. So the um, we had our own little symposium at a national forest in Ohio, mid-Ohio, one fall. And I didn't know where everybody was at. I went out for a hike. I came back in, and I walked in the room. Here's everybody sitting in a big circle, and I go, crap, I'm trapped. <laughs> they were working on this, Jim Polsky's work. And they had me sit down and... We, everybody was just sharing stuff. And I had not told anybody my background because I was scared to death that they would judge me and that I wouldn't be welcome because, you know, of all the animals I killed, all the hunting I did. And um, it had turned out to be the opposite. And um, I let go of my fear. <laughs> and I broke down and cried for half an hour. And... Uh, that was the beginning, and these people were my support mechanism, and I honestly don't know that I would be here today where I'm at if it wasn't for that group of people in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. So that was started me on this trajectory of learning every single thing I could learn about plant-based nutrition. And Cleveland is also a hometown. He was still practicing then of Dr. Um, Caldwell Esselstyn. And uh, he has a great book that your listeners should check into if they're worried about heart disease. It's called How, How to uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. And he had been running a clinic at his farm out east of Cleveland um, um, doing trials with people who were scheduled for bypass. And um, about 1% or less of the people that were scheduled for bypass took him up on it. But he had a 100% success rate at reversing heart disease with these folks. And so I glommed on to him and I uh, paid attention to what he had to say. And I wasn't a classical, I wasn't a cholesterol problem guy. So my problem was a little different, but I still needed to clean up my arteries. I still needed to um, get a hold of what was going on with me. And he helped with that. So um, Cleveland was a big part of this journey for me. And um, like you said in the intro, 
at this point, I'm, I'm on a plant-based diet. Um, it wasn't until a couple of years later that I had adopted a steer at a sanctuary in New York. And I uh, thought it seemed like the right thing to do. And I think, you know, it's not cheap to, <laughs> to adopt a cow. But I thought I was, I was Lola. That's, <laughs> that's okay. We're cool with dogs. Okay, that's Lola. Um, we, I figured, you know, okay, it's a lot of money, but, you know, this is the least I can do to kind of buy off some of my karmic debt. And uh, I found out it doesn't work that way. But in any case, I, I adopted this steer, and a year later, I only met Snickers a couple times, but a year later, I um, went to see him at a big event. And uh, he remembered me, and we embraced, and that's when I got it. That's when my head and my heart connected, because everything I understood about nutrition, everything I understood about animals, was all intellectual. It was my head. Um, but my heart, I can say, is it's like I had layer upon layer of armor around myself, because in our culture, we're, we're part of a herding culture. And in a herding culture in particular, men are not taught two things, which became very important to me, which is emotional honesty and moral imagination. And without those two things, I, w I wouldn't have been able to figure this out. But I had a great mentor, her name is Ray Sikora, and she's the one that taught me that. And, and she helped me a lot in figuring this all out and how to show up in the world being an authentic person and being honest emotionally and not playing games and all the rest of it. And not playing games necessarily with other people, but with myself. It was being honest with myself and what I felt. And um, so anyway, then after that, the documentary was made. Uh, Tribe of Heart is a um, documentary duo of Jenny Stein and James Levesque, and um, they've done two documentaries so far. They're working on their third. And, and uh, we're going to stop with that. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. We, we need to go to a break in just a little bit here. Um, in the interest of the small world, I was also at that 1995 Windstar conference. And really? Wow. My, and my daughter was in the children's chorus. Oh, my God. So, we, you know, we could have walked one of those hills together. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, life is pretty amazing. And you are amazing, Harold Brown. So, everybody, please stay with us through these uh, upcoming announcements, and we'll be back with more. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive.
We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So happy to have you with us on the Main Street Vegan show this Thanksgiving season or whenever you happen to be listening. I am so enjoying this interview with Harold Brown, and I also want everybody to know what he is up to now. His organization is called Farm Kind, and we're going to be talking about that later, but you might want to be checking it out online. So, Harold, I am just riffing here on emotional honesty and moral imagination. Those are just such beautiful concepts. So when we went to break, you were finishing up your story. You were telling us about um, the film and uh, the Tribe of Heart who made the film. All right. Um, Well, Tribe of Heart, when it comes to films on this kind of subject matter, they're different from just about anybody I know out there that puts things out like movies like Earthlings or things like that, because they're about telling the story of people and, uh, and animals and the environment, but they respect their audience and they realize that we're all on a journey and, um, and that the most powerful thing in human culture is storytelling. So it's telling stories well, but it's not about being preachy or being um, didactic. It's about being, um, it's just telling stories of transformation. People who have gone through um, what I've gone through, like Howard Lyman did, and uh, um, Jim and Sherry at their sanctuary and so on. So it's... um, you know, how did we get from there to here, to where we're vegan activists? Um, and, uh, you know, I always argue, you know, if people say, well, that's hard. No, it's not hard. I'll tell you, between 1980 and now, it were light years. It's so easy to eat plant-based. Nearly every restaurant's got something for you now, no matter what scale that restaurant is at. And you can... And there's just no reason to. And, you know, I'm going to get my soapbox a little bit over here right now, (laughs) is that if you really are paying attention to the pandemic that we're in right now, it's because of a zoonotic disease, folks. It's because of our relationship with the natural world. We're the only species that lives outside the natural order, and we subjugate the natural order to our will. And we have always had zoonotic diseases. All of the coronaviruses came from the animal kingdom. Um, Another less appetizing little factoid is, is almost all of our sexually transmitted diseases came from the animal kingdom. And that goes back thousands of years, but that's another subject. But the thing is, is that we've got, you know, we talk about bird flus, swine flus, and so on. It's not a matter, you know, 1918, uh, in Dr. Michael Greger's book, uh, Bird Flu, he traces that back 
1918 pandemic back to chickens in the Midwest, that then the, made, the virus made a jump to pigs. Pigs are a little bit more than 98% um, share, just over 98% of our, our DNA to humans. And once it gets into pigs, it easily gets into humans and for the species jump. So, you know, as anybody in epidemiology or virology will tell you, it's not a matter of if it will happen, it's when it's going to happen and how bad will it be. So this is a time when everybody should really be paying attention to what they're eating, what they're supporting. Are, is, you know, are, the, are your consumer dollars just enabling these, you know, these systems that use animals uh, to spiral us into another situation of another epidemic or pandemic? Yeah, they are. So we need to rethink it. But look, I've been looking at things in the food business. The sale of plant-based meats has gone up considerably during the lockdown, since the lockdown in March. And um, I think people are starting to wake up to it, and which is really encouraging. I'm so happy that that's happening. But, um, yeah, it's something everybody should do their homework on. Don't believe me. I never expect anybody to believe a damn thing I say. Do your own homework. And go out and find it. Connect to a land-grant university and ask them, what do you think? And if you think, I'm jumping ahead here a bit, but if you think, oh, well, I don't eat factory-farmed um, food, which I, it drives me nuts people talk about factory farming. They're actually called CAFOs, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. They're concentration camps for animals. But the thing is, is that people think, oh, if I get grass-fed or pasture-based, that that's somehow better. Well, one, no, it's not necessarily any better from a disease point of view. And when it comes to dairy, it has almost no bearing, other than you're not getting the pharmaceuticals that they give um, conventional dairy cows. But there's still other problems that can arise. But if you're concerned about the environment, Grass-fed systems, pasture-based systems are far worse for our environment than concentrated animal feeding operations. So when you think you're being green by supporting a local farmer, animal farmer, you're not. You know, so anyway. And that's so hard, I think, for a lot of people to grasp because we, we have these brain synapses <laughs> that sort of connect organic, free-range, pasture-raised, those are all phrases that are somehow filed under good for, for most people. And it's so difficult to shift that. And that's one of the reasons that Peaceable Kingdom, The Journey Home, is such an unusual film because it goes after what so many people revere, and that's these small family and, and so-called humane farms. So what's it really like on these farms and how can we communicate with our friends who go to the farmer's market and feel like they're doing everything right, that this isn't really all that right? Well, that's, that's, that's a hard one in that the farmers themselves believe they've, some of them started out doing that, which has been a phenomenon here for the last 10, 15 years in New York, Western New York. You see a lot of young people that are getting into, especially pig farming, 
and um, they think it's better for the environment or whatever, but it's but it, that it's more humane, and there's nothing humane about it. I mean, it's yeah, you might think you're giving them some kind of bucolic life, but is that animal living on its own terms? No, they never do. No matter where you are, no matter how you raise them, because if they were living on their own terms, you wouldn't be raising them. And the other thing is, is that how, what kind of thinking is it to think that I will give them a great life until they reach what would be considered optimum slaughter weight, and then they're just going to have one bad day. You know, what kind of utilitarian thinking is that? You know, what what if somebody applied that to humans? Like, you know, we take our senior citizens. Well, you know, you're at a certain point where, you know, you your usefulness to society is now at this some metric that is no longer sustainable and you're too much of a burden on society. So you're just going to have one bad day. And it's, yes. all, you know, it's, it, I mean, people might think, well, you're going too far. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're really reaching here. Well, I, you know, let me just put it this way. You, when you kill an animal and you see, you know, an animal in particular trusted you, to do the right thing for them, because that's what animal welfare means, is to do in the best interest of that person. And you see the light leave their eyes. If you don't, at that point, nobody can sit there and just say, you know, I haven't broken a sacred trust. You know, I've done something wrong. And, um, you know, it's... Anyway, that's starting to get me down. Oh, I'm but, uh, sorry. Yeah, well, no, no, that's okay. It's okay. It's just I got a lot of baggage. Um, <laughs> but anyway, getting back to this is Thanksgiving, right? And it's one of my favorite holidays. But I don't, I don't use the word Thanksgiving so much because we do have a lot to be thankful for. But with the history of this holiday and how we've made it, the traditions that surround it um, aren't very useful if you're trying to live a morally consistent life. And what, that's what vegans are trying to do is live a morally consistent life. Um, so I focus on gratefulness. And um, the person who really woke me up to this was somebody who was at that symposium, uh, a brother, David Steindahl Rost. He was he grew up in Austria during the Second World War, and uh, his family escaped and made it to the United States. But uh, he's a Benedictine monk, and he's um, um, that his whole life's mission is to teach gratefulness. And uh, so I look at Thanksgiving, the holiday, tomorrow, as a being a day of gratefulness. And um, yeah, we can give thanks. But I think, to me, being thankful is is a powerful statement, but being grateful is even deeper. And um, there's actually a couple of of uh, quotes I'd like to share about that. Um, Epicurus, a uh, 
thinker, philosopher of ancient Greece said, do not spoil what you have by desiring what you not have not. Remember that what you now have was once among the things you only hoped for. That is so interesting because we always hear the term Epicurean and think that it means appreciation of only the finest foods and drinks. Yeah, but and, it's so different. <laughs> oh, it's, I, I think it's the same guy, or, or are you talking? Well, yeah, it's the same, but I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, I think I thought there was an I in Epicurious. Oh, that's And that's, that's a magazine, isn't it? Yeah, but it, no, com no. it, I, it comes from uh, an ancient philosopher. Well, we can all do some. There was also a philosopher, Epictetus. So I don't know, juggling philosophers. But it, it's really beautiful to hear these things from long ago that are so applicable. Do you have another one? Well, this one isn't that long ago. A. A. Milne, who wrote um, Winnie the Pooh. Yes. <laughs> Piglet noticed that even though he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. Oh, that's so sweet. I remember on, on a trip to London taking um, my daughter and my husband's children to the Hundred Acre Wood. Okay. <laughs> you can actually go there and visit and there's this little shop. Yeah, that's, that's very special. Yeah. So, Harold... How small of a fraternity are you in? I mean, how common is it for animal farmers to leave? And I realize you had some extenuating circumstances with the health issues, but for people to just look at what they're doing and say, oh boy, I'm on the wrong track here. Is, is this a trickle or a stream? It's a stream. Um, I was just on a Zoom conference uh, a few days ago, um, and I suggest people, I wish I had the name of it in front of me, but if you go to Rowdy Girl Sanctuary, which is in Texas, she is a point person, and getting she and her husband were cattle ranchers, and they became vegan a few years ago, and turned their ranch into a sanctuary, and they're now working part of that conference thing was two farms that are making the transition right now and also another um, a few other uh, ranchers that are now vegans so it's happening um, and I think that we're really in an exciting time of, of um, awakening but it's it's so many different levels I mean there's this of course a moral awakening but um, I think you know this. The mean spirit, the mean spiritedness of the world is getting old for a lot of people, and they're looking, I think, for you know something else, something good, and to I don't know to find that other way is so important to them to give meaning to their lives and not be part of the, you know, the anger, the divisiveness, the, you know, tribalism that we see going on. Um, and it's always been going on. It's just kind of on steroids right now. But um, I don't know. It's, it's uh, 
part, you know, it, this always brings me to something that Gandhi said. And um, I'm reworking, believe it or not, and talk about an audacious undertaking, but there's a couple other people working with me of coming up for a new definition, another definition for vegan. And uh, the one that has been used for so long has one little catchphrase in it that's been a problem. And when it comes to um, uh, celebrity culture, it's being used recently for a celebrity who went from vegan to not being vegan, but there are vegans out there who are saying, oh, she's still vegan, even though she's eating animals. Uh, and so I'll just read my draft of a definition, and it ends with what Gandhi said. And this is what veganism means to me. A way of being in the world that seeks true peace, dignity, and respect for all life, striving to eliminate all harms, domination, and exploitation of life on earth by eliminating the use of all beings for food, commerce, and labor with the goal of liberation for everyone. Adhering to the core principles and values of compassion, empathy, and love for all life and the planet. Striving for moral and ethical consistency. As Mahatma Gandhi stated, a principle is a principle. And in no case can it be watered down because of our incapacity to live it in practice. We have to strive to achieve it. And the striving should be conscious, deliberate, and hard. Ooh. I like that. And you're right. It is a huge undertaking, but how cool that you have undertaken it. <laughs> well, you the way were... I see it is, is that we're evolving. You know, yes. our culture's evolving, society's evolving, and the old definitions of veganism maybe are a little bit not well adapted to where we are because, you know, so many people now can wrap their heads around the idea of intersectionality and that when we exploit animals, that's where it's speciesism. If we can exploit the biggest part of the biomass of this planet, which is farm animals, and not think a second about that every one of those lives, every one of those individuals was begging for their lives when they were killed, is something that people are waking up to. And I think that, you know, the old terms just don't work, like the old term that I saw an essay that somebody wrote defending a celebrity who gave up being vegan is veganism is a philosophy and a way of living which seeks to exclude, here's the problem, as far as possible and practical. That becomes the out, as far as possible and practical. practical. Yeah. Um, it, it's so interesting to me, Harold, how everything kind of goes around and comes around because that was not the original definition of veganism when um donald watson started it back in the 1940s he had a different and and simpler but no no wiggle room definition so i love it that that you're uh attempting to to bring us back there i just would like to know on a personal level did your family ultimately come around maybe not to doing what you do but admiring what you do no not really. Okay. I'm I'm sorry to hear that, but it's very interesting to kind of know the rest of the story on these things. So I understand how you and how uh, Renee at Rowdy Girl can speak to farmers, 
But what about the rest of us? If, if we live in a farming area, but maybe don't have a farm background or, or maybe there are farmers in our family, how can we, as the weird vegan, speak with understanding, tolerance, but still not defying our own values? Um, I would say the best, there's a couple of tools that I think are important. I'm hearing Money. some background noise. If uh, oh, there's yeah. a way to get away from that, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the first is empathy, and I mean it's easy to be judgmental of farmers and people connected with you know meat packing and so on and so forth, but especially people working meat packing, most of them are just poor, disenfranchised people that don't have many options and. The the thing is, is that when you talk to these people, have empathy and not be judgmental because there I've known very, very few vegans who were born that way. They were born vegan and were able to maintain that their entire lives. Most of us came to it. We muddled our way through and then finally figured it out. And that's why I say my definition of veganism, it's a striving. It's a relentless striving for moral consistency. So when you're talking to these farmers, you know, uh, talk to them, but it, again, emotional honesty. Um, when they talk about, you know, you, you use, I think the Socratic method is the best way of helping people learn about themselves because their truth can only be their truth. If they think it's, they figured it out themselves, you can't give them truth. So they have to find their truth by using Socratic method, by asking questions, like they say, Oh, I love my animals. And you say, really? So how, how do you demonstrate that love? Just keep asking questions, but don't, don't be a jerk about it, but just ask questions and then say, you know, say, but, you know, well, we have to do this and we have to do that. And I know that doesn't probably sit too well with you. But I said, well, yeah, well, when you have to do those things, like castration or dehorning or whatever, you say, how does that make you feel when you have to do that? Well, usually they'll go on an expla explanation or go into the biology of it or why it's necessary for the market value of that animal and say, no, no, that isn't what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, how did that make you feel? And the thing is, is every farm, inside of every farmer is a farm kid. And they remember what it was like when they were a kid the first time they witnessed that stuff and when they had to do it. And all you have to do is help them remember to put it back together for them. But you do that through kindness, you do it through empathy, you do it through caring, and you do it through just being present and asking questions. Well, you speak beautifully and eloquently, and I, I know that you've helped me, and I know that you're um, helping my listeners too. So before our time ends, you have an organization, and it is called FarmKind. So tell us about that. Well, FarmKind, my website is down right now because of some issues. But, um, yeah, it's in, what I do is I... I do a bit of speaking. I travel around the country a bit and um, speak at 
colleges mainly lately. It's uh, land grant universities. Land grant universities are the universities and colleges that teach uh, agriculture. So, um, you know, and it, it's also being available to help other farmers that want to have a toolkit on how to get out of of agriculture and, or to make a switch going from one commodity, you know, out of animals into say plant-based. And uh, that's what Renee is doing at Rowdy Girl. Her and her husband are, um, you know, building this coalition and it's getting big. So it's, uh, you know, they're, they're basically doing what I've done, but they're doing it much better than I did <laughs> in a much larger scale. Well, so many people are doing such a great job. So I cannot not ask of a man who says Thanksgiving is his favorite holiday. What are you going to be eating? Okay, well, I probably should have my wife tell you, but <laughs> she's working on it right now. We're going to have apple crisp. We're going to be, we, there's a new, um, oh, I don't know if you've heard of that place in Minnesota, Herborius Butcher. Yes. Well, We've got one in Rochester, New York now. It's called uh, Grass Fed. <laughs> That's the name of it. And they're okay. a new husband and wife team. I just talked to him last night. And we've got a stuffed loaf and we've got their regular roast. And um, we're going to give a try of their stuff because we haven't had it before. And there's also, you know, the mighty and great uh, Poobah, Seth Tibbet, and all of his products. Is, <laughs> We've been eating his ham all week and his uh, roast, his holiday roast. So um, tofurkey rules. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of great stuff. So we're going to be having that, um, mashed, garlic mashed potatoes with um, with mushroom gravy and uh, squash. squash. We had Sounds a bunch of this year. It sounds perfect. I have read that that Seth and Tofurky have said that they sold six million holiday roasts this year, the most of any time in the company's history. Even though there are lots of competitors now and uh, lots of uh, other things that people can pick up at the supermarket. Thank you so, so very much, Harold Brown. Thank you to our engineer, Jeff, and Unity Online Radio. And mostly, thank you, listeners. I am grateful. God bless. Eat your tofurkey. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.